Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. On today's show, poet and author, Mayan Nagi Kaptan. Junior year, I was a Jesus kid. I befriended this girl in my high school. We ended up going to this festival thing, like a Jesus festival, and I was convinced I'd been saved, you know, and I like didn't want to watch any more rated R movies. Then the next year, because my sister, she came to the same sort of festival-y thing that we went to the next year, and I was all swept up in this like crazy emotion, and like, and she, I think she was like 12 or something, and I was 15, and she just tapped on my shoulder, and she was like, this is stupid. <laughs> and it like snapped me out of it, and I was like, holy shit, she's right, this is stupid, what are we doing here? And I like, the fog lifted, and I was like, okay, I went through that phase, and then my senior year of high school, I started hanging out with the art kids, and then I knew. Greetings and welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. Here we interview artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. We can be found along with past episodes at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher under Fun to Know podcast, always with the numeral two. You can find photos and more about our guests at the Fun to Know podcast pages on Facebook and at Twitter. And would be delighted if you take a minute to leave a review of the show on iTunes or any of those platforms, or just send me a note with your thoughts through Facebook. Thanks again for listening. Just a quick announcement before today's show. I'll be the instructor of a new class starting in January at Fleischer Arts Memorial. Over five Thursdays, we'll be looking at some great works by women film directors in a film class called 50 Years of Women Directors. We'll see films by Agnes Varda, Claudia Vile, Julie Dash, Catherine Briat, and Lucretia Martel. It's an intriguing batch of films. I invite you to check out more about the class at Fleischer.org. That's F-L-E-I-S-H-E-R dot O-R-G. Fall has found the fun to know schedule packed with interesting guests. There's a flurry of shows coming, including discussions with a hot film director, a New Orleans musical duo, a podcaster and activist, and more. This past summer has been a bit sleepy, but check back soon for more episodes throughout the fall. Now on to today's show, a conversation with poet and author Mayan Nagi Kaptan. Mayan is a poet, writer, and performer currently centered in Philadelphia. Born in Cairo, Egypt, Mayan's parents immigrated to the U.S. in the 1980s, where they earned a somewhat hard scrabble living. With English as their second language, Mayan approached language with a linguistic curiosity that helped fuel her early creativity. In recent years, Mayan has indulged her love of travel, visiting and sometimes teaching writing to young people in Vietnam, Portugal, San Francisco, and as we discuss, the Lakota Native Reservation in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Mayan has unleashed her first chapbook, a beautiful volume entitled Copy Body, published by Empty Set Press. We discuss the immigrant experience, small-town America, Mayan's love of hip-hop, the 2008 Bonnaroo Festival, soul great Solomon Burke, author Gwendolyn Brooks, performing for audiences living well beneath the poverty line, feminism, teaching Lakota youth, where to sit in a sweat lodge, Mayan's emo phase, and more, as well as hear Mayan performing her own work. Mayan is full of positive thoughts in troubled times. Let's head over to the Fun to Know Kitchen Table Studios and hear that conversation.
So I do have some poems prepared. How much do you want me to read? I would imagine at the very least you would read maybe three pieces. Is that okay? I write long pieces. So do you have like a time limit? How long are they? They range from like four to seven minutes. Four to seven minutes. Oh yeah, would be good. That's that's a good. Okay, so maybe length. I'll do like two. I'll do two. Do two? Yeah. Okay. Should we do one in the beginning and maybe do one at the end? Sure. Okay. Um, so should I read one now? Um. Well, I'm gonna. Uh, how about I give you an introduction? And, that sounds uh, great. We're here at the Palatial Fun to Know uh, Studios here, uh, with Marianne Captain. Is that? A, yeah. yeah, Marianne Nagy Captain. So I go by my full name now for professional. Thing. Great, and uh, <laughs> uh, I've uh, been familiar with Marianne for years uh, from uh, sort of being around the neighborhood, being uh, someone who has worked and, and lived in the area, and I know she's been on an amazing amount of adventures in the past uh, couple years, traveling and uh, working and performing as a poet and writing as a poet and doing uh, all sorts of projects around town, and she's been out of town for so long, and she's back in Philadelphia, and I thought this would be a good chance to sit down and have a conversation about her, uh, your interesting life. Uh, <laughs> for uh, someone who's uh, you know, now in his 50s, to look back at somebody younger who still can uh, get up and, and travel the country and visit a bunch of cities, uh, I have to admit, you know, very, very jealous to uh, <laughs> see the life you've been living. Uh, so uh, where are you from originally, Marianne? So this is a question that I, I really love because just lately... From traveling, I've started answering that I'm from my parents' house. Yeah. And that's my response. Um, so I was born in Cairo, um, in Egypt, in 1988. And yeah, this, is, this is definitely the kind of show where you could take that question anywhere and yeah. I would go along if you would. Yeah, so I was, born, I was born in Cairo and lived there until I was five. And my family emigrated to, um, initially, we landed in New Jersey in 1993. Um, and it was... A month after my fifth birthday, my mom told me it was my birthday present <laughs> that we got to live in America. Um, and then uh, in 1994, we moved to York, Pennsylvania, which is about two hours from Philly. And so I lived in York, Pennsylvania f- until I was seven or eight. No, I think I was 12. And then we moved to Dover, Pennsylvania, which is like r- very rural, low income town that's just west of York. So it's part of York County, but it's not in York proper. Um, so what did all these, all these, all this moving entail? Uh, uh, what was your father doing uh, from, uh, or your family doing uh, from place to place? So my, when they came to the States, we basically had nothing. My, my dad has a really interesting history. He's the youngest of five. Yeah, he's the youngest of five. So his two older brothers moved to America in the late 70s, and then his sister married um, an Egyptian man, my uncle, they moved to England and then they came to York, Pennsylvania in like the early, maybe like mid 80s, late 80s, timelines, man. Um, and so my dad, who has another sister who who lives in Egypt, decided that he was kind of following their footsteps. But just recently I found out that part of the reason they ended up coming to America is because my oldest uncle, his name's Nadir, he was... He was basically failing out of high school and um, was threatened, was going to be threatened to be drafted, like in the, I guess this was the 60s and 70s. And so my grandfather pulled some sort of illegal thing and reversed the citizenship of all of his sons so that they didn't get drafted. And so my dad was, from like age 12 on, wasn't a citizen of the country. 
And so he had to reapply for visas and had to, every time he would go to, to apply for a job or apply for schools, he basically didn't really belong anywhere. Um, I'm still really foggy on the details of it because, like, my parents don't think their lives are interesting, and then every time they tell me a story, it blows my mind. And so my dad wanted to have citizenship somewhere, so he kind of followed my uncles, who basically were deported from the country. Yeah. Um, and so they ended up... My mom met my dad when she was 28, so she didn't get married till she was... I guess she met him when she was 27, and then they got married when she was 28. And she knew he was coming to America, and so that was a huge part of the reason she decided to marry him. <laughs> I think it's the only reason, but that's just my reason, or that's, like, my uh, opinion on that. Because she is, like, super-duper independent, like, has always... She was working full-time and going to school full-time when she was in her early to mid-20s, and then she ended up working at a hotel, and she was meeting Americans every day, and, like, British, and, like, people from Europe all the time, and just, like, that planted a seed in her head, and she, like, wanted to leave, and so when she met my dad, that was a really good way. Yeah. I have to admit, just hearing the word citizenship in the... In 2017, just sends chills down my spine, and I, I have this feeling like, oh, I don't, you know, you don't need to tell me all your, <laughs> all your family stories of, of everything that, that happened. Not that I'm not interested, but I almost feel like, you know, too much is like, explain why you're here or something. Like oh that. no, no, I love it. I think it's really, I, I think it's important. I think it's, every, I mean, we're immigrants. Like, my sister and I, even though we're, people. Like, I don't have an accent, you know, like I consider myself, quote unquote, American, but we're very much immigrants and everybody's immigrant story is different. And I think it's important to hear them Absolutely. because Absolutely. it's fascinating and it's interesting. And it's like every time I talk to somebody hearing their story, it's like so dynamic and some of it's relatable and some of it isn't at all. And I think sometimes we don't tell each other stories enough when it comes to our experiences as outsiders. And that's been a big part of your work that you've been traveling around and, and doing as well, hasn't mm -hmm. it? So uh, tell me uh, about that work, how your family stories intertwines in there. It's really interesting because I didn't really write about myself until very recently. I never wanted to touch that because I didn't really know how to get in there. And I... I didn't, I'm 29 now, so I didn't really understand the amount of sacrifice and the amount of effort that it took to bring, a, like, my parents were in their mid to late 30s when they moved to America. They brought a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And they worked in McDonald's and Chili's, so <laughs> respectively. My mom worked at McDonald's, my dad worked at Chili's, and they worked, like, double shifts all the time. And... They made a home for themselves in a country that they were entirely unfamiliar with. Like my mom didn't even speak the language. She grew up speaking French, and my dad didn't know the language either. And like even to this day, because he's like 90% deaf, he has a really hard time communicating in English, and in general, like, so they made it happen. And then yeah. also, they created a life for my sister and I, and supported our creativity, which 
we're sort of the black sheep in our families because my sister it lives in LA and she's study theater and um, is she works at Universal Studios and like is trying to get into acting. She's three years younger than me and I'm like doing this poetry and writing thing and all my cousins are they work you know, in finance or they work in computers or they're married to doctors. And, um, <laughs> but my mom was always really adamant about like giving us space and like taking advantage of the fact that we had so much more freedom in America than we did in Egypt in regards to like what we could do and like what we were allowed to really explore. And that was like a huge part of it. So like I didn't know how to touch that because I didn't understand like the breadth of it, like the amount of effort it took to raise two kids in a healthy environment while also just being like barely making the, like being qualified as working poor. But recently I've been exploring memory and that's something that I'm super interested in. So like a lot of my new work um, and a lot of the work that I've been exploring through my writing is just tapping into those like vignettes from my childhood in yeah. moments where I realized like where I recognize my parents as these like enablers, these people who have allowed and like sacrificed and. Well, what were your parents like? What what what, what kind of characters are your parents? <laughs> so I maybe would they're say, not like, characters. Well, they are. I mean, ev everybody's a character. You're talking to a writer, so I'm like, everyone's an archetype in some degree for me. Um, my mom is, like I said, hyper independent. Has always, always done exactly what she wanted. And growing up, she just powered through. Like, she was the backbone. It's a very matriarchal household. Mm -hmm. My dad, he's fairly timid, really funny, like goofy, which is where I get my sense of humor, but a perfectionist. So was kind of, like, always really hard and, like, nitpicky about a lot of things. Hard on us and also hard on my mom. But he had a lot of injuries growing up and sort of... Um, so he was hit by a car when he was 17 and it broke his femur and it like messed up his back. And so by 2004, he was on permanent disability because of like a ruptured disc that was, that stemmed from that injury when he was a kid. And so he hasn't worked since 2004. And so that really changed the tone of our household. I was like in the middle of high school, things kind of got very strange because my dad was no longer a breadwinner and he was... Um, he couldn't work at all. There was like no opportunity for him to make because a he's not qualified to do much because he doesn't have a degree. Um, he does have a degree in geography, which is, I think has always been like an interesting fact about him is that he taught geography in college in Cairo, mm -hmm. but he can't really even speak the language. So it's almost impossible for him to find a job like, you know, working. Uh, he can't stand very long, like his legs are not so great anymore. So he ended up at home all the time. And so that sort of changed the way that our household was run. You were suddenly it. seeing a lot more of him, I guess. Yeah, and also like seeing him be depressed and like dealing with this sort of emasculating new lifestyle because he couldn't do much. And he had like a few surgeries and he also had like he found out he had diabetes the same year that he found out that his back was gone, basically. Like, And so it, it's complicated in that sense. And my mom's always been... She's, like, extremely supportive of my sister and I, always has really good advice, and has always just been like, don't get married, don't have kids, keep doing whatever you want to do, and if you decide you want to have kids and get married, 
it's not because I'm pressuring you to, which I think is amazing. And it's like opened up so many doors. And like when I first started traveling, she, she was like, okay, I need you to write down like, and I like an hourly itinerary of all the things that you're doing and where you're going and who you're going with. And she was always like very hesitant about it because I, I didn't start traveling until I was 26 or something. So I wasn't like a kid. Although she did let me and my sister go to Bonnaroo in two, I was 19 and my sister was 16 and we took my dad's like Mitsubishi Galant and it had a Jesus Loves You sticker on the back of it and she let us like, I don't think they understood how far Tennessee from Pennsylvania is and she let us drive the whole way to Tennessee, a 19 year old and a 16 year old. Who were you most excited to see at Bonnaroo that year? Oh my gosh. Well, I was excited to see Iron and Wine because that was like what I was into when I was 19 and it was like not the best show ever, but I did get to see B.B. King and Solomon Burke and my sister and I were were pulled up on stage and we danced on stage with Solomon Burke and his daughters. And that's like probably my most memorable Uh, I I, When I first moved to San Francisco in the 90s, I went out and saw Solomon Burke as well and his... uh, his son stood behind him, his handsome young son, and, and uh, he held a towel, and he would yes. uh, mop Solomon, Brow's, <laughs> Solomon Burke's he brow. He sat in a throne, and he was in like a three-piece suit, and I was like, you're sweating because it's like 100 degrees outside, you're in a three-piece suit. Also, you're sitting in a throne. The whole thing was amazing. Yeah, yeah. That was when the he best. opened his voice to sing, you knew why he was and why he was uh, had that reputation. I know. know. Yeah. So that was really cool. And then, yeah, and Metallica was there that year too. <laughs> I don't know, but, so anyway, so my mom is like, but now she's just like, go enjoy your adventures, like, she trusts that I know what I'm doing, I don't, but she thinks that I do, um, I kind of know what I'm doing, I think, I don't know, um, you always struck me as a responsible person, I I imagine that you've held the keys to many a business over your, over your years, I have, I don't know why, (laughs) but, yeah, I have a lot of energy, because a lot of people ask me, like, how are you able to do everything that you do? Like, I just have a lot of energy, and I don't do sports, so <laughs> <laughs> it's like all brain stuff. Like, I have a crazy brain, and I, I'm constantly exercising it. as a young woman as an adolescent as a teen as a kid as a kid yeah well it's funny because as a kid like my dad would say that when we lived in Cairo I knew like all of the homeless people who lived on our street I knew them by name I would like hug them and high five them I was super duper friendly not like I'm very friendly now too like my parents always say like I've been the same person for the majority of my life and so but I also had childhood depression when I was like in my preteens so that was really strange. I had like severe insomnia when I was between like 10 and 14. I like didn't sleep at all. And then I also had, I would go, when I did sleep, I would go through these like huge sleep spells where I would sleep for like 18 hours. Or, what, do you, like, what do you think was contributing to that? I don't know. I think it was puberty probably. And also just, I'm a Pisces, so. <laughs> Tell me what that means. <laughs> It means nothing. I'm just like, uh, I'm very empathic. And I think also there was some stuff going on in my between my parents that I didn't 
know about like directly, but I could sense. And I think that was part of it too. And also just kind of coming to terms with like, realize, like recognizing that my parents aren't like the other parents in my town and we were moving. So like we ended up moving from York to Dover and York is like the school district that I went to before was fairly diverse. Like my best friend was Ukrainian. This is York, Pennsylvania? York, Pennsylvania. So the district I was in was it's called Central. My two best friends were Egyptian and Ukrainian. My best friend Marina is actually who lives in Portugal and who I visit when I go. Um, we've been friends since we were six. But then when I moved to Dover, it was like everyone was white and everyone was from Dover. And we were Middle Eastern, and we moved there in 2000, and then 9-11 happened shortly thereafter. Oh, my goodness. And so that really influenced the way that I felt about myself and, like, contributed to ongoing depression that kind of went into high school. That was more triggered. Like, I had a lot of panic attacks in high school, and I had a lot of, like, I tried on a lot of different, like, personalities just to see, like, where I could fit myself in. So I went through, like, an, as most of us did, an emo face. And I also went through, like, a hip-hop phase, too. So, like, my freshman year of high school, I was, like, super into Good Charlotte and emo. Showing my age right now, which is emo-aged. Um, and then I, like, went through, like, my, the, my like, sophomore year, I was, like, super into hip-hop. Totally different people. Junior year, I was a Jesus kid. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So I befriended this girl in my high school, and she was super sweet and, like, she just kept inviting me to her youth group events so I would go to these youth group events and then we ended up going to this this like festival thing like a Jesus festival called the choir of the fire which was in Baltimore and I was convinced I'd been saved and I was like crying was it Jesus and I, like, rock playing and stuff were there Jesus yeah bands? it was like yeah. Jesus rock and it was just like a big convention and so I, we went to that and I was like saved you know uh -huh. and I like didn't want to watch any more rated R movies because I knew they were bad. <laughs> and then the next year, because my sister who, the joke between me and my sister is like, she's the head because she's like very logical. And I'm the heart because I'm all emotion. And together mm. we're the gut. And like <laughs> when we're together, everything makes sense. Uh -huh. Right? And so like she came to the same sort of uh, festival-y thing that we went to the next year. And I was all swept up in this like crazy emotion. And like, again, I'm very empathic. So everybody was like feeling things. And she, I think she was like 12 or something, and I was 15, and she just tapped on my shoulder, and she was like, this is stupid. <laughs> and it like snapped me out of it, and I was like, holy shit, she's right, this is stupid, what are we doing here? And I like, you know, like the fog lifted, I just hit the mic, the fog lifted, and I was like, okay, she's a genius. I'm just going to keep listening to my little sister who like knows what's going on. So yeah, that I went through that phase. And then my senior year of high school, I started hanging out with the art kids. And then I knew. Yeah. So I took poetry class with my favorite teacher of all time. Her name was Barbara Lomenzo. So I took a poetry class and I took a creative communications class, which is like poetry and like kind of performance things. And um, and I took them in the same semester. And that's when I like met my best friend now, my friend Brittany, who is like, we've written together, we've performed together. She's like my soulmate. She also lives in Philly, but like her and I like connected right away our senior year and we've been best friends since. What, I mean, they always talk about how, how hard it is to sort of sell poetry to young people. Do you remember in the class, like what attracted you and what you liked about it? Yeah, it's language. Like 
the English language is so fascinating to me and like it wasn't my first language and I remember taking ESL classes and I remember becoming like really interested in grammar and like really interested in like syntax and the way that English sounds so different than Arabic and like listening to my parents speak and like the fact and only later in college did I, I took a linguistics class with this professor Muffy Siegel who's amazing. She also has a great name, Muffy Siegel. Um, and she had us do a project and I told her that my parents speak English as a second language. And she's like, you should just listen and record your parents speaking in English. So I recorded my mom speaking in English. And I realized in that class that my mom applies Arabic language rules to English because she never formally learned it. And then later when my parents got on Facebook, they were Facebook like chatting and messaging me and they never used punctuation. And that's because they never learned grammar and punctuation because they only learned it through hearing people speak English. And that kind of blew my mind. So in, in high school, I was just so interested in sound and how it differed from my parents, like the way that English sounds versus the way Arabic sounds. And so and I was also interested in like restrictions. So like forms were really interesting to me. So I played a lot with like different forms like Sistina and haiku and sonnets and I was so invested in creating something super duper creative in these like really restricted spaces and so that was like kind of where my love of poetry was born because I've always I've always written like in in elementary school I won like class writer <laughs> and I was always like telling stories and I would stay up really late at night my sister and I always shared a room and I would wait for her to fall asleep and then I would just like talk myself to sleep telling stories <laughs> all the time and like we would be driving around like my my best friend from Marina the Ukrainian girl that was my soulmate when I was a kid <laughs> and her and I would be driving around like well, we wouldn't be driving but her parents and I would just be telling her stories all the time, constantly. And so it just made sense and for me poetry was like, there's one poem that like struck me and I still like hold it very dear to me, which is, um, it's called The Pool Players or and it's by um, Gwendolyn Brooks mm -hmm. and it's my favorite poem. Do you know Gwendolyn Brooks? She's awesome. She was um, part of the Harlem Renaissance. Yeah. Yeah, alright, here it is. We real cool. I found it on a website called Schmoop. Okay. We real cool. The pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool. We left school. We lurk late. We strike straight. We sing sin. We thin gin. We jazz June. We die soon. And it looks like this. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And so that was the first time I realized that, like, I can just write poetry that's sound-based. And that's, like, that was my introduction. And I started writing, like, really rhythmic. I was really exploring, like, sounds. I didn't care about meaning. I still, like, just recently have I started really caring about meaning in poetry. But, like, up until maybe five years ago, I was just like, I'm just going to make sounds. And I was like really into experimental language poets and like interested in conceptual poetry and stuff. I still am, but lately I've been really trying to like figure out how to weave in a lot of narrative and like actual prose and like 
Yeah, tangent. I mean, there's, you get into the whole musical thing of language there. You know, I, I often pull everything back to music, you know. Totally. But uh, the, the way rhythms can be, uh, you know, shuffled and arranged and, and, and jogged along, you know, is, is, uh, is uh, so much of performance poetry. And, and you, you do perform quite a bit, don't you? I do, yeah. That's my favorite part. I Sometimes I think I like performing more than I like writing. And so most of my pieces, I have a few pieces that are like specifically for the page. Most of them are meant to be read out loud. Um, and I'm interested in this idea mostly because, so there's an essay that was written by M.H. Abrams called The Fourth Dimension of a Poem. And I think it was written in 2012. I think I read it like the year it came out. And he says that the fourth dimension of a poem, so there's the meaning of the poem, which is one dimension. There is the sound of the poem. Then there is the way that it looks on the page. Those are the main three dimensions. But then he says the fourth dimension is the actual act of enunciation and like the way that it feels in the mouth, which is a dimension that's often like not taken into account. So I got hooked on this idea of like this, the feeling of poetry, the mouth feel of poetry, like the physical act of enunciating things. And so I started studying voice acting and I started studying like hip hop too. Hip hop's like a huge part of what has influenced and like shaped my performance style. Well, you say it was a phase you went through in school, but I mean, it was an, oh, an examination. Really it was an exploration a little bit. You know? <laughs> it was. And I memorized yeah. hip hop albums in high school and I was so like, I don't know. I just. What were your faves? Oh my God! I don't want to say it's embarrassing. <laughs> uh, the Blueprint by Jay Z. Sure. Ludacris's first album, Back for the First Time. I don't know why. I still love it. There's like a, a freestyle that's towards the end of the record that is amazing. Um, but when I say Ludacris, people are like, "That's dumb," and I'm like, "No, you don't understand." <laughs> Off of the reaction to Listen the promotion, to the and you know, they're yeah. not really reacting to knowing these songs and yeah. these things. Yeah. Yeah. So. So those were like my main two. And then I, of course, like I was super into Eminem because his rhythm is insane. Like his rhyme schemes are crazy. Like that was amazing to me. Slant rhyme and off rhyme and all of these like tricks that he does. And it's like so consistent and so like methodical. Um, and so I got really invested in this like methodical rhythmic piecing together of sounds. I don't want to go on too long with the talking without giving an example of your uh, of your writing. Uh, yeah. are, you are you ready to read something? Sure. I can... Um, here, this is your copy. Don't Thank let you. me bend it. I can read one poem that's like, I think, a good example of this sort of rhythm um, that I'm talking about. And it's... So the this is out of my new chapbook. So it's called Copy Body, and it's two collections in one. Who, who put this out? From Empty Set Press. Um, so one side is copy. The other side is body, so it's a flip number. Oh, just know. like my, my favorite, like, uh, monster magazines as a kid and exactly. stuff. Exactly. <laughs> it's poems full, full of monsters in these pieces. Um, so this is a piece called Scar. Four bullet-sized pins, a hole split in two, a scar, a scar, a scar, a scar... Raised and yellow, scabbed over awkward, a skin-stained aftermark. 
yanked thread caught on caddy corners from 10-inch pins sewn in and surgically inserted to hold the bones in place. Loose thread yanked, a scar's new scar. Cross-legged sitting creates a deepened dip in the first, creates a crease in the second, creates a wrinkle in the third, creates a cellulite wave in the fourth. A clatter of limbs, the pop of readjusted bones and the high of the reconnect, a clutter of ribs, organs pushed to corners, all of it is shifting, is sloughing off, my body is younger, it feels muddier, and at the hands of a chiropractor, it bunches and rolls, I feel touched by the shape of things. The curve of a hip. The arc of chapped, wetted lips, eyelash crescents stuck to flushed, freckle-pocked cheeks. And the way a belly puffs out, dimpled and covered with hair, rock solid up top and soft and squished at the waist of my pants. Very nice. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, have you been to a chiropractor? Yep. Yes. On uh, 12th um, and Spruce. <laughs> I'm trying to think of you're talking about how how uh, how much energy you had and how good you felt and I thought wow this is really about bodies and and being physically in bodies and stuff and when you're feeling great you sometimes you don't think so much about your body and how good it feels but the chiropractor that really forces you to think about your body I think so too <laughs> I think so too that's like a big part of I mean my writing is this is called copy body and I write a lot about the body, and I write a lot about being in the body. And when I was in Portugal this summer, I was part of this program called Disquiet. Um, it's an international literary program of North American writers and Portuguese writers. Um, and there's a workshop um, element to it. And one of the people in the workshop said that women don't often reference their bodies in their work, like their physical bodies, or like even just touching their own bodies. Like you don't typically read women like saying, I touched my knee. And so that's something that I really, really like to write about is, or that I'm, not that I like to write about it, but I think it's important to write about, which is like how women interact with their own bodies and not just this sort of like ephemeral sort of metaphorical thing. Like that's the last stanza of that sort of thinking about the fact that like when I put my pants on, my belly squishes when I button it up. Like I, you, I don't read very a lot of work that just sort of like, looks at the body as an object, or not as an object, but more objectively, and just writes about like kind of like the scatter of freckles on a face and like sort of the beauty in that, but not romanticizing it, just sort of pointing it out. And the poem is about the, this four scars that I have on my leg here, um, which I'm so fascinated with scars because I think they hold so many stories and they're so interesting. Did you and get I, all four scars at once? Yeah, I broke my leg when I was in third grade, oh. and I ended up getting pins put in them. So four bullet-sized pins, a hole split in two. My bone was broken in technically three places, so they put these pins How that stuck happen? out. I fell off a fence. Like, it's not a good story at all. <laughs> I just, like, was trying to hang out with the boys and, like, impress them. So I climbed a fence to get a Frisbee that, like, had gone over. And then I, like, was climbing back, and I just slipped off the top bar and just landed in a way that just like broke my fragile bones. Oh my goodness. I don't really get it. Like maybe I didn't drink enough milk. It was only a four foot fence. Like I I don't know why. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine how like, the weight landed on it. Uh, no uh, the idea. weight of a little girl could break uh, could break the bones. Okay. It's amazing. But it happened. Yeah. It's true. 
Um, yeah, so, but yeah, I think that's a really good piece that illustrates sort of like the uh, interest in language and rhythm, and it still makes sense, but I think when it's enunciated and said out loud, I like to think and I hope that the audience gets lost in sort of the rhythm of it and the meaning becomes secondary. Um, the physical presence of the person really uh, is something that, that, you know, you can't overlook as well, you know, to really, you know, all the things that you learn from just uh, somebody's, uh, in the way they're standing and the way they talk and the, you know, the way they look and the way they dress. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mentioned, I think earlier we were talking that, that I hosted poetry readings back in the 90s in San Francisco's for years and and for me the whole uh, it was endlessly fascinating the presentation that people brought you know as well as the as the words that they had mm-hmm. yeah I love watching people perform I love spoken word like that sort of Philly has an incredible incredible spoken word scene like between the Philadelphia Youth Poetry Movement and the Pigeon which is like the big um, slam program that um, Jacob Winterstein hosts and puts on they have we've just been like breeding an army of spoken word and like slam geniuses so, it's amazing so what is the character of these readings what, what do you like about the philadelphia readings just the power in voice like it's so confident and so present and so many of the poets that come out of pypm are just like militant and i appreciate that and i don't write i don't write the same sort of style as slam poetry I, um, like content wise, but I really am, I, every time I go to a show, I feel empowered to like, when I go on stage to just say like, don't fuck with me. That sort of is the persona that I'm always trying to capture of just like, how do you devastate an audience? That's always my goal. And then also how do you like scare the audience into fearing if they look away that something's going (laughs) to happen? This sort of like arresting quality of like a good performer. I've heard people say, uh, we came to collect heads. Yes, that's me. Yeah. Um, And I think it surprises a lot of people, too, because, like, my persona, like, when I'm performing in full, like, if I have, like, a full set, I wear a dress, I wear lipstick, I try and look as, like, unthreatening as possible, and then I try and go on stage and just, like, murder it. It's really fun. It's part of the challenge. And also some of my work is like really dark and like has elements of violence in it that I think or I hope surprise people. Um, That's really for me like what I'm always trying to do is like I'm trying to surprise an audience every time, whether it's like a linguistic turn they didn't expect or like writing about sort of a, a subject that they wouldn't expect somebody to explore in the way that I the path that I've taken. Yeah. So, but that's the hardest part of writing is making it novel. Yeah, yeah. The hardest uh, part of art <laughs> is like the novelty of it. So. Uh, I interviewed David West, a, a San Francisco poet who I really love, and he was talking about young poets, and he says, you know, there's a certain point where you have to realize, like, it's not interesting because it happened to you. Yeah. You've got to make it interesting. That's, <laughs> and that's so much. like the best part. Yeah, that impulse, you know, to to, to uh, communicate when you're going through those strong things, like that's one thing. But really finding a way to put a perspective on there that's new and fresh is a yeah, you know, and writing for thing. an audience, like that's another thing I love about spoken word. It's designed to be performed, and it's designed to be like digested by an audience. And so most of the time, page poets like 
page poetry, maybe it's like the intimacy is in the fact that like one person is sitting down and reading your poem and that sort of intimacy is between sort of two people, the reader and the writer. Whereas like with performance, it's between the performer and an audience. And that audience is sort of this blank slate. Like you don't know who's in the audience, you know, and, and granted, like when you're somebody's reading your poetry you don't know the person that's reading it but it's sort of this other thing that I'm still trying to figure it out like what that means to be the intimacy between one person going on stage and sort of like creating an intimate space amongst strangers that's really interesting to me intimacy in general is like my main drive for for my art I just like want to bring people in even if it's in front of, like, I think the biggest show I've ever done was in front of 400 people. Where was that at? Crazy. I opened for Andrea Gibson in 2013 in Lancaster for this program called Poetry Aloud. And it was like, I don't know how I ended up there because it was like the Poet Laureate of Lancaster, Poet Laureate of York, PA. Uh And then it was me and then it was Andrea Gibson. And I was like, why did you put me right before Andrea Gibson? I'm just like a little girl from Philadelphia. <laughs> I had to like, I... Did you know the people that were putting this yeah, together? Yeah, I did, but I just like didn't understand why they thought that I was the person. Uh-huh. But that's like a huge thing because Andrea Gibson is like one of the most famous poets in the country. So 400 people. And I just, and my parents were there. <laughs> and the best thing is like, my parents don't understand my poetry at all. But they were like, but we see your passion. And they like really respect my passion. And I sent them a copy of my book when it came out. And my mom messaged me and she was like, we put it right in the middle of the living room so everyone can see. And I was like, did you read it? And she's like, I don't understand anything that's in it. But it's beautiful. We put it in the middle of the living room. So I appreciate that about them. Because she was like, she was really proud of me. And I was yeah, it I is. was like, "This is you did this. You let this happen." FF, my mom's name. It's like <laughs> if you weren't so supportive, this would never have happened. So yeah. But it is interesting because I, I talk to many artists and creators who who can't get anybody in their family to, to really digest what they're doing in a creative sense at all. And yeah. uh, but it's interesting how families can keep that 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 odd distance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, my aunt and uncle. Because growing up, like we were close to my aunt and uncle. So they lived in York, so my dad's sister, I don't think they, like, are even interested in hearing about what I do. And even my sister, because even, like, I remember when I first told my uncle that I was going to get a degree in English, he just laughed in my face. And this was, like, almost 10 years ago. And I was just like, okay, all right. 12 years ago? 12 years ago. And I was like, okay, this is going to be a thing that I just do. And when I come home for Christmas, I'm just going to not talk about it. And even when I started working and, and they won't and they won't notice that at all. They won't notice that at all. I'll just keep talking about I don't know <laughs> movies. I don't know. Just about a month ago, I, my sister, I, I talked to her and uh, I'd interviewed somebody who she was Facebook friends with, somebody from our, our hometown, a, a stand-up comedian, like somebody she had some connection to. So I said, oh, you know, I did an episode recently with Rich Scheidner, and she looked at me like. Why would I mention that and then to change the subject right away? <laughs> so, like, the interest in the podcast hasn't really caught on with the rest of the family yet. But I hear that. Other places. Yep. But whatever. I don't mean, I don't even know how to measure success when it comes to poetry because there's no money in poetry. Yeah, yeah. 
Did you, you studied in college, I assume. Yeah, I went to Temple. So I started at Penn State, and I was initially studying playwriting and screenwriting. So I got really into just dialogue. Mm-hmm. Like when I came what, out, what was the inspiration school, of that? Do you think? I just eavesdropping all the time. <laughs> you were were you reading playwrights at all? No, or? I was just eavesdropping all the time. Yeah. Um, no, I was so I was dating a guy who was studying theater, and I had taken a theater class that same senior year that I took the poetry and the creative communications class. I also took a theater class, and I wrote like a one act play for it, and I like loved the process of like because I love characters. I love people. The like, same little girl who could talk herself to sleep at night exactly. could probably like spill out dialogue as well. Makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. And funny because like when I was a kid, the, most of the dialogue I was having with myself is like pretending I was a talk show host and like interviewing the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> so it's just like, AJ, what did you? What do you like to eat for breakfast? And then it's like me voicing AJ McLean, and that was like what I did. And and then for a while there was this ongoing thing with my sister where I convinced her that every time she fell asleep I went to La La Land and it was like a real place and I had a boyfriend there and he was the actor from this movie called Xenon Girl of the 21st Century. Greg Smith. Anyhow. I had a a similar neighbor who I convinced I was dating one of the new Mouseketeers. Exactly. It's not hard to convince children of things. No, no. No. I think years later there was that confrontation where I realized I'd (laughs) lied to him for years and they got pushed off a bike or something. uh, Oh, man. uh, That never happened to me. (laughs) But I did. I mean, I fell off a fence, so maybe karma just like really... So, so you were you were studying uh, play uh, playwriting, playwriting. screenwriting. Yeah, so I um, I got really into playwriting and I started writing like two act plays. And then my ex boyfriend, my boyfriend at the time, I hate the phrase ex boyfriend. I think it's stupid. My boyfriend at the time, um, he was interested in doing like a short film. So I was like, okay, I'm gonna take some of these like playwriting skills that I'm getting from my classes at Penn State York because I went to the branch campus. Um, for the first two years, and I started writing the screenplay with him, and I had this idea of like, because I love voiceover. Voiceover has always been something that I love in film, and I was watching a lot of like, um, American Beauty. I watched it like four or five times a week for some reason. The Kevin Spacey. Kevin uh, Spacey, and uh, reading yeah. the script, and I was really interested in the way that voiceover worked in that movie, mm-hmm. and so decided to create this character that was a mute. So. The character is mute, but he tells the story in voiceover, and it's like a psychosomatic thing. And so we started to write this screenplay, and it was like a murder mystery kind of thing, because he like lives with this evil uncle, and he like starts dating, and they work at a, um, like a market stand. They sell vegetables, fruits and vegetables, and then he starts dating the girl that kind of helps at the market stand, and then the girl and him decide they're going to like get rid of the evil uncle so that he could take over the market stand and they could run it on their own. Super silly. And so we ended up writing it and then we ended up casting it and filming the whole thing. And it was like, we rented out a market stand in Central Market in York. And then we, my friend who worked at a grocery store, every night they would throw away the produce. And so we like organized this hijack of the produce from the dumpster. And he like, we took my mom's like, like, I think it was a Ford Fiesta. We took my mom's Ford Fiesta, like 1993 Ford Fiesta, baby blue. And we took it to the back of Wise Supermarkets and we filled it with fruits and vegetables. <laughs> and then we set up this, like, 
market stand in the middle of the market and people were trying to buy fruit from us and like the other people that were in the market were getting really angry with us because we were taking all of the customers and i was like this is garbage food you're trying to buy garbage food one dollar for that banana sir i'll take it (laughs) so we ended up filming it and i was like super interested in that and then when i transferred to temple so you completed a feature uh, with it was a 40 minute film okay so it wasn't a short and it wasn't a feature does it still exist no, because my ex-boyfriend lost it because he okay. smoked a lot of weed. <laughs> <laughs> smoked a lot of weed. So, but we Sorry like cast actors because all of his uh, his classmates or whatever were theater people. So like, we had a full cast. Wow. We shot in Baltimore. We shot in a library. We shot in. I we were like nineteen. I had no idea how we pulled it off. Um, but that was like a big thing. And then I realized like. Okay, I kind of like want to go. I knew that I wanted to leave York, and I was for a minute gonna like transfer to State College because Penn State has a really amazing writing program, creative writing program. Um, but then I came to Philly on a whim. My friend was just like, "I'm thinking about like applying to Temple." Like, and I was like, "What's Temple?" And then I remembered that um, Philadelphia was a part of the world. I'd never been there. And so my friend and I ended up going when we were, I think, 19 was the first time I came here. And I was really confused by everything because I I spent a lot of time in Fishtown. And that was 10 years ago. So Fishtown 10 years ago, which is like nothing like Fishtown now. Fishtown now is unrecognizable. And I was like, this place is insane. We should live here. And so I applied to Temple, got into Temple, and then realized that the the poetry classes at Temple were really amazing. So, so yeah, so I just, like, still kind of did some film stuff, because then my, my partner at the time decided he was going to come to Temple, and so we did some film stuff here and there. But theater stopped making sense for me, but I was really interested in dramatic monologues, so... That was sort of part of it too with my poetry. So why did theater stop making sense to you then? Because it was a group effort, mm-hmm. and I wanted, and I had more energy than I could keep up with. So I needed to do something that was just me, where I could just rely on myself. So that's when I started studying voice acting because I was like, I don't know how to act, but I have this voice, and I like want to figure out how to use it. Um, and so I started writing dramatic monologue ish pieces where it's just like one character one voice and some of them are in copy body um that was fascinating to me and so I became like a one-woman show and I was like really interested in maintaining character and sort of exploring monologue without all the extra people involved sure yeah why shouldn't all the attention be on you yeah exactly <laughs> it's your piece precisely um so what was this one woman show you said about maintaining character and yeah so i so there's a piece in the book called housewife mm-hmm. and that was a piece i started writing i think in 2011 and it took very many 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 variations and then it kind of became like the poem that i think it was the poem that i wanted the rest of my poetry to live up to and it's 
it's like seven years old at this point, but it's still in the book because yeah. I was like, okay, this is like my trophy poem. And it's, yeah, this creation of a character, the creation of voice, the creation of like study, because escapism is something that we, I mentioned it briefly before when we were talking earlier. I'm so interested in escapism and how it manifests in so many different ways. And, um, and I think monologues are a really interesting way. And on another note, like my favorite book of all time is As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner, which is like a book created, like entirely made up of internal monologues. And that's so fascinating to me because it's this space of intimacy. It is internal monologue. It's this conversation you're constantly having with yourself. And that is more interesting to me than anything else. This sort of, at least it was in college. So this piece, Housewife, you say it's a cornerstone piece. Is, <laughs> could there be a chance that maybe we could we could hear it? It's in the yeah. book. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to hear it now? Absolutely. Okay. <clears throat> the book once again, copy body. Copy body. And by what what press is it again? Empty set press. Empty set press. You can find press. it on the internet if you've ever heard of that place. Um, okay, Housewife. Seven years old now, too. I hear. Seven years old. It's my my child, my second grader. Um, The skirt only fluffs when you've wrung it through twice. Pour in hot soup to rinse out the wounds. Safe sap from chopped trees. Trees chopped by hands belonging to a man tending fire while the mother shapes sap into toys for the children. Toys for the children and soup to rinse out wounds and infantile comfort. A comfort which held up until the children outgrew the coddle and began chopping wood like their father. Their father, a man who walks on all fours, will shoot a doe from behind, empty its insides, and use its parts for the children. See toys made of sap, they seldom cross paths with axe-wielding children. She prepares their meals of routine, bows her head on the counter because she's dizzy, but doesn't miss a beat when the kettle steams. She thinks how lovely it would be to leave and swim in the ocean all day, meet a stranger at midnight, kiss the cleft and have him sit funny on a mattress like a stranger would at first, seeing that all new things are funny. Have him lay funny on a mattress and take love from him. Is there much else funnier than taking love from a stranger? A man who proposes marriage in bed is a man who chops to build to burn. Is a man who wraps around the mother like tendrils but appeals to thorny children who grow sweet at first. Then bitter, uncaring towards a mother who still kisses scars in company and squirms at the sight of spoiled meat. The mother, much stranger, cannot walk on hands and knees to support the weight of three. With skirts fluffed and wrung through twice, lashes fanned and pointing in all the directions she prays to travel, to the direction of the ocean, to the direction of a stranger who eases towards the surface, his face speckled with bits, his eyes pleased and pleasing. A stranger who eases towards the surface, 
to lay funny on a mattress. <laughs> Housewife. <laughs> yes. Uh, <clears throat> there's a great film I, I love called The Diary of a Mad Housewife, which is about a, uh, a woman's sort of fantasies and, and, and the world she sort of disappears into is the sort of oppressive, uh, you know... Uh, so uh, I, I, I guess I'll bring up the word feminism. Where do, where do you uh, sit with the word feminism? I guess you're uh, post-post, you know, post-feminist. It's so complicated. Point. Feminism is complicated because, like, there's a million definitions and, like, a million different ways into it. I believe in doing what I want, and I believe that people should do what they want. And be able to do what they want. That's my stance on feminism. Okay. That's it. <laughs> I do what I want. And I find ways to do what I want. Even if there's barriers standing in my way. And I think that it takes a lot of work. Um, and I think feminism as like a political, larger idea is... Fine, great, yes, women. Um, but I often think that we get lost in the rhetoric and we don't do enough. Um, I think we can have conversations all day, but like, are you doing what you want? Are you making your life what you want it to be? Are you active in pursuing it? And like, are you living up to what you say you believe in? All of those things to me is like actions over words are far more important. And so with my writing, like I write about women all the time. There's a piece in here called Blood Pact, which is the piece that I wrote when I was living in the Adirondacks. And it's about, I think for me, it's the most feminist piece I've ever written. And it's just about like how gender roles are developed through siblinghood and through um, sort of the interaction of um the, sort of the animalistic interaction of like boys and girls mm -hmm. and I think about that a lot because it's for me feminism is it's so easy to fall into tropes as a writer when it comes to topics like feminism or equality or equity or whatever all of which are like paramount and obviously like inarguably important and but, it's also, but it's also sort of a way to, to stake a sort of claim about, you know, a pro proclamation of, you know, defining yourself with all these. Yeah, labels, I don't you know? just, I just, I just don't, I just don't identify with that language. Because I, what I identify with is the notion of, if you want something, make it happen. Yeah. That's what I, that's how I live my life. I recently did a class uh, where I looked at the, the work of Agnes Varda, the French mm. filmmaker, and uh, she hasn't embraced the word feminism, and she's like, you know, making a film is hard enough, mm -hmm. you know, you can always make excuses, you yeah. know, <laughs> like, uh, and uh, she, she refused to sort of label herself a feminist film. Yeah, and I think it's controversial, and I think it's hard for me to even say it out loud sometimes, and it's hard for me to navigate those conversations, especially now, and like, and the conversation of feminism and third wave feminism and sort of like talking about patriarchy and and then there's also the other end which is like I 
I have this whole other cultural background where like the country that my family comes from and that my cousins and all live in that shit is really patriarchal. <laughs> yeah. Like I would never be able to do the work that I do and express myself the way that I do if I was still in Egypt. And so I have a gratitude for that. And I think that many immigrants have that sort of gratitude of just like, I could never have been able to do this had my parents not made that sacrifice. But it's so difficult to express that gratitude when there's so much buzz around you saying like, everything sucks. Yeah. Everything doesn't suck. Mm -hmm. But it's also perspective. And it's also like not getting stuck in that brain loop of thinking that like the world is ending all the time if you don't meet a certain like standard of living. So... Well, we'll talk about that, a certain standard of living. I mean, sort of uh, devoting yourself to poetry is a bit of a, uh, uh, of sort of like devoting yourself to sainthood in a way that it's not a pursuit that is going to uh, make yeah. life easier for you necessarily. Yeah, I think it's more about a devotion to self-expression and not so much specifically to poetry. Poetry just happens to be my medium, and it also just happens to be the medium that's easiest and cheapest to make because language is free for the most part don't have to wait and for it, anything to dry exactly right like and i don't need to be in a studio i could just record my poems on my iphone um and so it's really cheap to make poetry it's also not gonna yield any money like i have books for sale but i make like less than ten dollars on each of them yeah which is fine like i've never been wealthy not a day in my life have i been above the poverty line ever <laughs> i remember at one point making a proclamation to my parents like if you think i'm trying really hard to get rich and i'm failing terribly <laughs> like that's not really what i'm doing out there exactly like it's not interesting to me like i'm very minimalistic i uh, because i love people so much i think i get really lucky with i have so many incredible people in my life and opportunities fall in my lap because i like for me, navigating the world, the way that I navigate the world is through like emotional and social relationships more than anything else. And I've been able to like live in Portugal for five weeks this summer. I don't have any money, like I'm poor, but I have a best friend who lives there. And I have a network of people that I've developed through just being there um, now. And I can go back and I have multiple people that I can go back to. Well, you, you traveled a lot in the last couple of years, it seems. Can you name Have. some of those places you've, you've been? Yeah, I, oh man. So, it started with Wales, and then I was, I went to Portugal in 2015. And then I went uh, back to Wales to see a friend, and then we went to Barcelona and London. Um, and then I, I've been all over the East Coast, obviously. Once you get a car... Mm -hmm. then it's all over at least for me <laughs> like I just because I have so much energy like I just want to go everywhere all the time 
and having a car allows for that. So I've traveled all over the East Coast. And then um, last year I decided that I was going to leave Philly. So I was in Vermont, made the decision. I was invited to go live with my friends in the Adirondack Mountains. And so my lease was ending last August. And so I decided not to renew my lease. And then I had tickets to go to California for two weeks. And so I just canceled my trip home and extended it by another three weeks. So I traveled for five weeks last summer. Um, so I was in California. So started in LA, went to Big Sur, spent four days in Big Sur, then took the Coastal Starlight from, no, I took a bus to San Francisco and I was there for five days. And then I took the Coastal Starlight along the coast from San Francisco to Portland. My favorite part of the trip. 17 hours on a train like literally my dream come true i just read and sat in the viewing car and like watched oregon go by it was like the best part of my trip yeah i took um, the train from oakland to new york city uh, at one point the best i yeah. love trains they're my favorite places to read and to write and to just like observe human behavior because like none of us can go anywhere we're all on this train we're all eating this crappy diner food and yeah, it was the best part. And then I met my best friend, Brittany, who I mentioned earlier. She was traveling the country in a van doing a writing project on death and dying, interviewing people all over the country about who worked in the field of death and dying. So like morticians and like crazy people who embalmed and like mummified birds. I don't know. Anyhow, so we got I got in her van and then we traveled across the West. So we spent the most of the time that we were traveling to so we were headed to South Dakota because we were teaching a poetry um poetry camp basically in Pine Ridge South Dakota with the with Lakota youth um but we spent most of our time in Wyoming in the meantime because that's like my favorite state and like growing up I knew all about like Yellowstone and I always dreamed of going but I never thought I would go because like <laughs> my parents never we never traveled when I was a kid yeah. And so the whole time I was in Yellowstone, I was just like crying and like falling over and being like, that's the Grand Prismatic Lake. And like <laughs> just weeping in joy um, and spent a lot of time in South Dakota and worked with the Lakota youth and just lived with the Lakota people for two and a half weeks. We ended up going back in October as well and teaching another class there. Um, we have a really good relationship with this um, nonprofit called the Matakui Foundation. Um, and they do arts programming on Pine Ridge, and we so, got lucky. So tell me about your time with the Lakota youth. I mean, it's uh, uh, been uh, a lot more hearing about Native Americans in, in, in the news since the uh, the pipeline uh, protests mm -hmm. and things like that, but I think to a lot of people, the you know, the Native Americans are just myths more than, uh, you know, real, uh, you know, humans living in our country. Yeah. So tell, tell me about your experience. Yeah, so Pine Ridge is... Um, the poorest place in America. It's 99% unemployment. And what state is this in? It's in South Dakota. South Dakota. So it's an hour from Rapid City. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a really high teen suicide rate in Pine Ridge, really high. Um, and there's a lot of drug use and alcoholism. And so it's sort of this place that has this really s sort of sordid reputation. And it's interesting because there's lots and lots of kids on the res and a lot of them are directly affected by the neglect and that we see that's directly caused by the American government and the relationship that the American government has. Um, the Lakota also technically own the Badlands but they won't sell the Badlands to the American government so there's also that element to it too is 
part of this national park belongs to the Lakota people and they could sell it for millions of dollars but they refuse to do it because it's like the last remaining remnant of their their true land and so also the Lakota people they're it was banned that they were not allowed to practice their religion in the 70s so they were no longer allowed to practice their religion so part of that was like they could be put in prison if they were found practicing medicine and so part of that was a huge part of sort of the decline of the Lakota in Pine Ridge Um, and so I went into this knowing all of this and I was really really nervous because I didn't know there's always sort of because I've been teaching in Philly for years I taught through Fleischer Art Memorial and play on Philly and and um, other avenues and so I've worked with low-income families and low-income youth for a long time but I didn't know whether or not I was allowed to be there like that was a hard thing for me to kind of like wrap my mind around because I'm not Native American and I'm not um I'm also just not white, so I didn't know what my relationship would be like to the land mm-hmm. um, because I felt like I don't have a relationship to, to that land, whether it's like a relation, like a history of colonialism or a history of tradition and custom and, and, and did, like I'm not indigenous to the land. Yeah. Anyhow, I'm rambling. But I clicked with the kids right away. I love teenagers they're my favorite kind of people because they're bold and they're loud and they push buttons and they're there are boundaries and they see the boundaries and then they put their middle finger up to the boundaries and I like that and when I at Fleischer like teen lounge is like my favorite place in the world working with teenagers they always surprise me they always have so much more to say than they let on and they always have like really sort of exact opinions and I really appreciate that but with the Lakota youth that I was working with so shy so shy it was so hard to get them to like participate or talk or to be engaged in what we were presenting Um, because I taught the class with Brittany so her and I were constantly reconfiguring what we had prepared and so hip-hop was a huge part of it too so we were like um, going over hip-hop lyrics because we were told that the kids love hip-hop and so encouraging them to write they didn't want to write they didn't want to share what they were writing and we were there for two weeks and by like the, the beginning of the second week they were starting to like talk to us and very because like Philly kids will just tell you how it is these kids were like terrified to say anything um, the majority of them there were one or two that was like they were just big personalities and Um, but then eventually we started to get them to talk and then we started to pick poems out because part of the program, it wasn't just poetry, it was film, it was dance and it was music. And the goal was that all of the kids would come together and make sort of a music video. So the dance kids would dance and the music kids would be playing the instruments and, um, then the film kids would be filming it. And the poetry kids, their job was to lend their voice. So to write pieces. So we talked about like what it means to be Lakota and what, where that pride is and sort of breaking the stigma of like Lakota people are this way um, and then writing through that. And so we ended up having three students in particular who wrote these brilliant pieces and I coached them through performance and they recorded their poems um, and then they were in the videos and it was just night and day like to see 
and then we made these really cool zines and it was cool because the kids who were more like visual or more like quiet but still creative could just be art directors they didn't have to be performers or they didn't have to be um the ones who are are sharing their feelings they could just do a collage you know what, what did the kids who did share their feelings want to talk about what were they are really i mean they do have a really hard time with recognition like they all wear the same clothes that all the teens i've ever met wear they all have snapchat they're all on pokemon go <laughs> you know they're all talking about um like i don't know drake they're they're american like they are contemporary american teenagers but they're so detached from the rest of the world because they're not really interacting with other kids that aren't Lakota. Um, and there's also like rivalry here and there. So like there's, there's like different parts of Pine Ridge and there's like weird differences between certain groups of people. And so it's just such a tiny little population of people. And so they're engaged with the world because of the internet but they're completely isolated from it because of where they live and oftentimes they don't leave and AJ who was one of our students he's one of the older students he was 23 had just gotten into the military so now he's in the army and that's like one of the first times he's ever really left Pine Ridge for long periods of time and so oftentimes military is their way to kind of like leave the res um then there is another aspect of it, which is like <clears throat> the traditional part. So we participated in a traditional sweat lodge. Mm-hmm. That was in one of the most insane experiences of my what, life. What was what was that like? It was very emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not as hot as it normally is because they were being nice to us. <laughs> so it was like 115 degrees, my guess, in waves because mm-hmm. it's just around house roundhouse and there's a fire in the middle not a fire but there's coals that they burn all day long to prepare for the sweat lodge um and then there's like 20 people all sitting shoulder to shoulder and then the we did it twice so we did it in june when we were there then we also did it in october when we went back and so there's an outer circle of like 20 people and there's an inner circle and when you're in the inner circle you're closest to the fire so I was in the outer circle both times because I'm a baby. And so there's chanting, there's prayer, there's that rhythmic sort of hypnotic state that you fall into. The first time it was really emotional. There's like a lot of tears and a lot of mourning and a lot of, again, this feeling for me that I couldn't escape, which is like, am I allowed to be here? Is this something that I can participate in and not feel weirdly out of place or guilty or like that I'm somehow came in through the back door and like I can't even pinpoint that feeling somehow you didn't earn to be part of this culture in a way or something yeah or maybe not even earn just like I don't know what it is I don't know the verb for it you know but so I had the first time I had a hard time just like letting that feeling go and it was like already like 90 degrees and then we went into the sweat lodge and it was like really hot and then we came out and we just got destroyed by mosquitoes and so there's this, like, really weird contrasting experience of, like, going in, you come out, you're, like, changed. Because how can an experience like that not change you? We were in there for, I think, 
about an hour and a half straight. And, you know, water gets passed around and, like, the flap gets pulled open and wind, like, air comes in. It's not like you're just in this, like, ridiculous sauna. But then afterwards we came out and, like, we were just swarmed with mosquitoes. So the next day, so it was, like, (laughs) insane. The next day we were all covered. Like, I had, like, 90 (laughs) mosquito bites in, like, a 15-minute period. Um, But, yeah, and I... I plan on going back. I mean, the program is um, seasonal, so I couldn't go this year because I was in Portugal. That was a really hard decision to make um, because I felt very committed to Metakabe Foundation and going back to Pine Ridge. And then this opportunity came up with Disquiet, and so I was just like, what do I do? (laughs) And so, yeah. So so what you now you're back in Philly and uh, what is your your plan uh, uh, now what are you what are you up to what's what's brewing? So the book came out June seventeenth. Congratulations! Um, by thank now. you. Yeah, we had a really really amazing um, release party at Paradigm Gallery on Fourth and Fitzwater. Just if you've never been to Paradigm, I'm gonna plug Paradigm right now because they're my favorite gallery in the whole city. They're a contemporary arts gallery and they are run by Sarah and Jason, who are both UArts graduates, and it's like my favorite gallery. So when they said yes to us having the event there, I was just like, I can die now. <laughs> my book's out, I'm at Paradigm, it's all good. So the book came out June 17th, and then I flew to Portugal for five weeks on June 19th, so I just came back like two weeks ago. Um, and so I'm touring the book, basically. So I just had a show at Kung Fu Necktie on Monday, and then I'm um, one of the headliners for a a big festival called Yellow Punk, and it's all Arab and Middle Eastern performers, musicians, comedians, and poets. Um, and so I'll be performing at, so I'm, I'm teaching a class called um, House and Home. So it's basically exploring through the five senses our memories of our homes um, and sort of ideas attached to home and safe spaces and sanctuaries at Crane Arts on September 2nd. Um, that's at three o'clock and then that night I'm performing like a half hour one woman show I'm going to say it out loud so that it becomes real because I don't actually know if I'm going to be able to pull it off Um, that's on September 2nd the night of at the Barbary so I'll be at the Barbary I don't know why people keep putting me in these really hip places I am not hip Um, and then I have a show in little Berlin and I have I have like nine shows coming up, but wow, that's, that's yeah, amazing. I'm gonna I'm gonna wear out my voice. <laughs> do you do you have a do you have a, one more piece for us? Uh, yeah, as the as the hour grows um, long, I can. I'd like to share my newest piece. Actually, I'm really excited about it. I wrote it in Portugal. It came all at once in one day, um, and it sort of speaks to what I mentioned very early on in this conversation about memory and like my new found obsession with memory um so if you don't mind please yeah so this piece is called conductor and you're reading it from your phone and i'm see that's oh, a, someone's calling me i'm not i'm busy um i mean i guess that's very common now but for, for me that's a that's a modern i still see that as the modern world you know everyone all the kids are doing it yes i'm sure um i also don't have a printer so if you would like to donate a printer to me i will happily take it <laughs> Um, so this piece is just like a little background. It's I wrote this after um, I'd gotten workshopped through Disquiet, and a lot of the people 
my classroom. I, I submitted this piece called Notes on Vietnam, which is a piece that I wrote that was like about memory. And it was also like bits and pieces from my notes that I'd written down during my trip and like sort of this weird ephemeral space of like not sleeping and also trying to like capture all of these like moments that I had with strangers there. One of the critiques that I got was that it was it was too disorienting. And I was like, but that's deliberate. And then I realized like, no, I want my audience to be able to access the work. And so this was sort of um, in response to that. So there's a lot of prose in it. And it's called Conductor. So I'm just going to go into it. Um, Conductor. One. I nearly drowned when I was six. I nearly drowned when I was 12. I nearly drowned when I was 19 in a pool in the Red Sea in the Atlantic. It feels like a charge which wrecks like a stroke on the neck. The ears plug up, eyes in full bloom, agitated by the burn of chlorine, the burn of saline. It tunnels under the lids. Who is responsible for you? Two. I bought a bag of figs for 150, then brought them with me to a park near the sea. I met some ducks, a peacock, a peahen, some roosters, their brood. This life is enchanted. I walked down to the beach, bought an ice cream, and thought, of every bone I've broken and the mountains I've climbed while wearing the wrong shoes. It was a sunny day. Three. I lie on my back, feign death, become a buoy, let the seawater block my ears, meditate for seconds, convince myself that what I hear are whale songs, but I know what's more likely the laughter of children at low tide? Did the pilots who fly those airplane banners notice me, dizzy in the water? Sometimes I spin fast enough to turn my limbs into turbines. Don't care if it's risky, what's risky? I like it, I get to forget I'm a person, forget I'm existing for nothing more than to work and to eat and to bury my debt in anyone's backyard. Four, I grew up in Village East, an apartment complex with a pool. The pool was across the street from our apartment and I swam every single day of every single summer for five summers in a row. A boy named Brandon was electrocuted in that water. I witnessed it. He was coming out of the shallow end, grabbed the metal ladder, and was hit with a surge of electricity that turned his body into a sack. In an early memory, Brandon was struck by lightning. It was only years later when I asked my mother about the incident that she clarified that it was probably human error. The day had been sunny, the sky cloudless. 
The truth was that something somewhere had short-circuited, causing an electrical charge to snake into the water, turning everything metal into a conductor. Brandon survived, but was never the same. I kept track of his actions. They were never the same. After learning that the lightning was never real, I formed a new memory of this. In this memory, I am underwater. Just moments before Brandon grabs the ladder, I take a deep breath and dunk my head beneath the surface. I open my eyes while submerged, my goggles snug to my face, and I can see the tendrils of electricity wiggling in the pool water. Five. The metal ladder is a conductor for the searing white of electricity which surges casual to shake the fillings from his jaw. When Brandon was electric, he became gray and dusty. He disappeared into the blue, sunk past the bottom, mostly became particles, part of the water. Blood vessels burst. His hair stood, then singed. The jolt triggered a sensation similar to that of biting into glass. Ox, Ejen, Ox, Ejen, Ox, Ejen. The buzz in his head was like wasps, droning, furious wasps, as if he'd been made a nest to house their saliva, their fuming commotion invading. Inside is his self, held hostage, turning shades of unrecognizable colors. His blood changed composition that day, became pool water blue, chlorine, and electric. Who is responsible for this. That's it. Very nice. Thank you. <laughs> so that's based on, a, I guess, a childhood memory as well. Huh? Yeah, yeah, of this kid, Brandon. Yeah. Brandon Watson. I don't know if I should say his full name. Probably edit that out. I have, uh, I have great empathy for the uh, the kids I grew up with who kind of, you know, got lost along the way in, in different ways, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it's such like a vivid memory because I was eight or something and we were in the same class and after it happened, the news, like Fox News or something, came to my neighborhood and interviewed me and my friend. He was nine and I was eight and we had just witnessed this very traumatic thing and they were like putting microphones in our faces and like trying, like the York Daily Record came out. They yeah. were like trying to get us to like talk about this thing and I was just yeah. completely like confused by the entire thing Yeah, because I was in the water That's and Brandon just happened to be the one who grabbed the ladder who grabbed the ladder <laughs> so yeah weird stuff like that I mean I think about those sort of points of trauma in your childhood that is so separate from you like you witness something didn't happen to you but the act of witnessing it is a, is a trauma in sure. itself. Yeah. And so that's something that I think about a lot. Or just even like the carelessness of life. Like anything, you might like be completely 
risk averse your entire life and then you're just in a pool yeah swimming and you grab a ladder <laughs> so it doesn't really matter sort of i mean it's kind of nihilistic in a lot of ways but at the same time I, I don't know i think it's kind of liberating which is just like do what you want death is waiting <laughs> yes <laughs> there was i was away on vacation i think in south carolina when uh, a a storefront had fallen off a uh, a front in back in Philadelphia where I'd lived and uh, mm-hmm. you know, right on somebody's head and then killed them instantly. And I just remember yeah. thinking like, that's kind of inarguable. It's your time to go. If a brick is going to fly from the sky and land on top of your exactly. head. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's a big thing. Like growing up, my mom was always so risk averse. Like she was terrified of my sister and I doing anything. We never went into sports because partially a, we couldn't afford it, but also my mom was, like, afraid that we would get injured. Sure. And so this, like, sheltering um, didn't change the fact that I, like, climbed a fence and broke my leg. It didn't change yeah. the fact that, like, I did some things that were probably very um, dangerous. I mean, most accidents occur just, in the home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just, like, you can't shelter yourself. and You can't shelter. I mean, to some degree, you can shelter your kids. But eventually, they're just going to react to their environments anyway. Yes, and you're really, so, but you're really, you've broken out at this point. You've uh, toured the world, haven't you? Are, I guess so. Are your parents comfortable with it now? Yeah. Yeah? I think so. I think they've just accepted that my sister and I are just going to, like, keep going. And, yeah, I mean, what else would I be doing? <laughs> Good question. That's what I tell myself all the time, because I was working, like, crazy for a long time, like, before deciding to like retire and be a vagabond and that was something I was doing but there's so many ways to live a life like that's sort of become my mantra is a constant reminder that there are so many ways to do it yeah and that there isn't one correct path and I am tired though (laughs) like I will say like the last year has been incredible but I am really tired Um, and I've done so much growth, emotional and social growth, spent a lot of time studying and like learning what I want. And I just want to go to bed, you know, I just want to take a nap after all that. I think you have nine more shows to do as far as I know. I know, I know. I can't sleep yet. Um, but yeah, other than that, I just kind of want to keep saying yes to things but also saying no to things too because that was that is like the dilemma of every person who is creative is knowing how to say no yeah being able to be in a spot where you can say no or being able to be in a spot where you can say yes but only if you pay me (laughs) so i think maybe i'm getting there but i don't know who knows i'm just banking on my charm at this point (laughs) Well, uh, thank you so much for coming out yeah, and uh, speaking to us here. That was great. <laughs> Thanks. One, two, three, four. That's it for today's Fun to Know podcast. Thanks to Mayan for coming in to talk. I think you can check out her Facebook page for a list of her appearances with her new chapbook, Copy Body, from Empty Set Press. Thanks to Frank Bellina for some emergency computer work that made the show possible. As for me, you can check out my writing on film at Falker.com. That's P-H-A-W-K-E-R.com. Look out for the Women's Film Directors class. I'll be teaching at Fleischer Arts Memorial in January. 
Hear me spinning jazz and beyond at WPRB Princeton Mondays at 11 a.m. EST until 2, both over the air and at WPRB.com. And I hope you will return back for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.